Well, we are working our way through the book of Romans, and we've made it all the way to Romans chapter 15, where Paul is going to talk to us about something that every human being desperately needs. Young and old, black and white, regardless of where you're coming from, desperately needs this. And he's going to tell us how to get it. And once you get it, how to keep it alive. What am I talking about? Hope. Look at the title. Hope. (laughs) Thought maybe you could guess. Hope. Hope. And that's why the Bible uses the word hope 185 times, because this is a book of hope filled with promises as well as a record of God's faithfulness. But make sure you understand before we use this word hope over and over in the message, when the world talks about hope and uses that word hope, it is not how the Bible uses hope. The world, it's more of a wishful, well, I hope so. I don't know. I have no reason to believe, but I'm leaning that way because I want it to be true, but I have no basis for thinking it will be. So I hope so. That is not the biblical definition of hope. When you see the word hope in the Bible, 185 times, let me give you a definition. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of future blessing. And it's based on something. It has substance. It stands on something based on the character and promises of of God centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's biblical hope. I'm going to say it again because I think it would help you if you got it. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of a future blessing based on the character and promises of God that are centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're going to see this definition teased out in these verses we're going to look at today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. I want to hear the rustling of pages or the swiping of devices. Get there. Don't just sit there and look at me. Get there. I want you to see this. These are great verses and I want you to be able to go back there again on your own. Romans 15 verses 4 through 14. Here we go. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the, and I'm, throughout this passage, I'm going to use the NIV translation of the ESV translation because I like it better. That we through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of 
hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Oh, listen to me. If you've been alive more than a few days or a few months, then surely you've seen it for yourself how fragile hope is and how confused people are as to where to find it. And once you find it, how to keep it alive. And here's what breaks my heart. Christians even, Christians who of all people should be people of hope, filled with hope, reasons for hope, very often are looking in the same places and placing their confidence in the same places as those that do not know the Lord and experiencing the same results. Singles are longing for marriage, and it is a good thing. It's a God thing. But too often they're placing all their hope in marriage. Oh, when I get married, it'll make me complete, and I'll feel accepted, and I'll be secure, and I'll know that I'm loved. Couples who are married and are longing for children, and they are a huge blessing, they are a good thing. But there are couples that are placing all their hope in conception or adoption or foster care, believing that that's when my life will get traction and I'll have joy and purpose and meaning. People of all ages, young and old, are chasing after the American dream, believing if I work hard enough, whatever I want to be, I can be. Whatever I want to achieve, I can achieve. And when I get to the top of that, whatever that is, oh, then I will feel significant and have hope and confidence and joy. But I could spend the rest of the hour, right? The rest of the hour describing the tragic, hopeless lives. Because there are some in our culture that actually pull it off. What everyone else is trying to do, they actually pull it off. Celebrities, Hollywood stars, sports figures, musicians, and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that get to the top or whatever that top is. And wake up even more hopeless, saying, what is it all about? I've climbed a ladder leaning against the wrong wall, and I still don't have hope. And I can understand even in our day to day. I get it. I get it. I understand. I'm listening. I'm paying attention to what's going on in our culture. More and more, more and more, I see people with a general, just overall sense of dread about the future with all that's going on in our world and culture around us and even in America that's been insulated from a lot of this for a long time, but it's, it's, it's arriving here who put their hope in politics and laws and talk radio and boycotts and support groups that want to take back America. But at the end of the day, they're just angrier than they were. And they've made some new angry friends. But they don't have any more hope than they did when they started down that political path of we will make it happen so that I can feel hopeful again. What does this now, please don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. That was not a little zinger to say, forget about voting this fall. Vote. 
please don't put your hope in anybody that's on the ticket. Don't even put your hope in someone you wish was on the ticket, but but it's not. Put your hope in one who sits on the throne. And nobody votes him in or out. He's constant, unchanging, and he still rules and reigns. And some of the unrest is causing us to be forced to put our hope back where it should have been all along. And Paul's going to tell us, where do you go? Where should we put our hope and how do you keep it alive? In this passage, let me show you what he does. Number one, he says, you got to keep reading God's word. How much of it? Oh, say it louder. You got to keep reading God's word, all of it. Because here's what I think is interesting. I've said that a lot, all of it. This passage just gives you a perfect example. Because verse four, look what verse four says again. Whatever things were written when? Before, former days, were written for our learning. The New Testament didn't exist when Paul was writing this letter to the Christians in Rome. So he's talking about what part of our Bibles? Old Testament. Some of you are like, there's an Old Testament? Yes, there's an Old Testament. Yes, get your pages separated from each other and go there. Make a new friend. Old Testament. He's like, he's pointing us to God's word as a place for hope. And he's actually pointing us to the Old Testament in particular. Because here's what's going on in verses 9 to 12. Did you notice how I said, and again, I say, and again, it says, and again, he's quoting from the Old Testament four times. So verse four tells you the things that were written before were written for our learning and endurance and encouragement. And then he models what he wants you to do. He piles text upon text upon text of who God is and what he's doing, of who God is and what he's doing Four Old Testament quotations. This is what will give you hope. This is what feeds hope. Listen to me. Look at me. Hope has an appetite. So you better know what to feed it. And hope eats God's word for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and even loves to snack on it in between. Let me ask you, how much hope have you been waking up with lately? You may have gone to bed with CNN news and blogs and and I don't know what all, but how much hope have you been waking up with? And let me ask you, how much of God's word have you been feeding on? Not much of God's word, not much hope. Hope eats God's word for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is what feeds God's word. I mean, this is what feeds hope. Hope has to, you have to have the right diet and recognize what, what keeps hope alive. It's God's word that keeps hope alive. And Paul doesn't leave it fuzzy for us. In verse 4, he tells us three things that God's word will begin to weave into your life that produce hope. Three things that God's word begins to weave into your life as a threefold cord that produces hope. Did you see him as we read it? Look at the first one, number one. Learning. Learning, learning. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. And that word learning in the Greek is didasko. And it gets translated doctrine 21 times in the New Testament. There's 21 other times in the letters of the New Testament where the English translators, when they saw the word didasko, chose to translate it doctrine. Get this. Hope needs something to stand on. A foundation. Sound doctrine 
is what hope needs to stand on in a shaky world. And you read God's word. And listen to me, more and more, I'd say in the last five to seven years, as things have gone the way they continue to go more and more, I am finding an equal measure of joy, if not more, in my Old Testament than the New. I've been as guilty as any of Christian, I've been a Christian since I was seven, of just living in the New Testament and the Psalms, living in the New Testament and the Psalms, living in the New Testament and Proverbs, Folks, you want to get some, you want to get some doctrine to stand on. You want to start feeling some pillars of concrete pillars of something stable. When you read the Old Testament, it's much more history of nations and rulers. And one comes and one goes down and you see a sovereign God all over. One of my favorite things is as you watch some of these kings like Nebuchadnezzar, nice guy, bad guy. Was he a God-fearing Did he have a Christian fish on his chariot? Was he playing Christian music around the palace? No, wicked. And you read your Old Testament and you see God saying, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, is about to do blah, blah, blah. What? That comforts me. That gives me something to stand on. There's nobody in this world in power in Washington, at the UN, in the Supreme Court, in any other nation that's there apart from the sovereign purposes, plan, and decrees of our God. God is not worked up about how did we get here? What is going on? I should have gotten out the vote with the archangels. We should have dumped leaflets around and talked more about sovereign. Sovereign. He sets one up. He puts one down. Nobody serves a moment longer than he has decreed. Oh, it'll give you something to stand on. CNN news and blogs and conservative talk radio. That will not give you hope. It will make you mad. It will drive you to a prescription from your doctor to help you sleep. It will cause you to excessively do something else to distract yourself from the reality of what is so discouraging that you're hearing. Let me give you something better and there's no after effect. There's no toxic fallout. There's nothing bad that takes place in your life. It's all good. God's word. Eat it for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and watch hope get strengthened and come alive. It's got to have something to stand on. Whatever was written before was written for our Learning, doctrine. Secondly, notice he says, whatever's written before was written for our learning that we through the endurance, endurance of the scriptures. That is the word in the Greek, hupomeno. That's why I switched to the NIV or the ESV for this passage because the New King James says patience. I'm sorry, that just falls a little flat. That doesn't get it. It sounds like I need to put up with an annoying person in traffic. Endurance, I get that. Because it's the Greek word hupomenos, and it means to stand up under something, under pressure, and not collapse, not buckle. Oh, I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that. What's going to help me stand up under all this going on in my family, or in the community, or that's on my heart and mind, or the emails I'm getting, or all the friends that I know that have cancer, or the, or the newest divorce, or adultery? Or What's going to help you stand up under all that hupomenos? God's word. It'll give you doctrine, something to stand on. It'll give you spiritual legs that don't crumble as you stand up under. So endurance. And then he says, and encouragement. And that simply means to put courage back in your heart. 
Have you not found yourself being more scared, more fearful, more anxious? Your mind just darting around. You're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I need to rein it in. I I get to a very unhappy, scary place in a hurry. What's going to put courage back in your heart? God's word. Look at what it does for us. It gives me something to stand on, sound doctrine. It gives me spiritual legs that don't buckle, hoopo meno to stand up under whatever's going on in your life, which may not match what's going on in my life or her life or his life. But if you ask around, folks, almost every single person has something that they're struggling to stand up under. It may not be your thing, but it's a hard thing. And something that feels like a hose that's just trying to suck the hope out of them. What's going to put courage back in your heart? God's word. God's word. God's word. You've got to have it. Facebook cannot do for you what reading the Bible will do for you. Think of the hours you spend on that. Updating your Twitter site or whatever. Think if you just put your phone away or just left it at home one day. The amount of time you look at that thing and you said, I'm going to take all those minutes And look at God's word all throughout the day. I mean, you're robbing from your employer anyway by looking at your phone constantly. Go ahead and look at the Bible. It's amazing to me. I was was teaching in Detroit this weekend and I had to go to Target to get some allergy medicine. As As I went in, there was a guy that's supposed to be pushing grocery carts in. He's standing there with his phone. As I came out, he's still standing there with his phone. It's like, you can get 10 carts in faster than this if you put the stupid thing away. Oh man, it's just, we can't, we can't. We can't stop looking at that thing. It owns us. It's not a service. It's not helping you. It owns you. It's a master. But I digress. God's word. God's word will give you something to stand on. Legs that won't buckle as easily and courage back into your heart. Despite the sucking sound of our world that just is trying to suck the very life and hope out of you. You have to have this. It'd be like going to your doctor and saying, I feel so anemic. I feel so weak. I feel lightheaded. In fact, I keep passing out on the floor several times a day. They have to revive me. It's awkward. He says, what have you been eating? Eating? Well, nothing. He's not going to give you any medicine. He's going to say, eat. Eat and start with fresh vegetables and your grains and dairy products and lots of water. And folks, we've got Christians running around sharing with their best friend. Oh, pray for me. I'm so discouraged. Pray for me. I'm losing heart. Pray for me. It's so hard. I would like for some of you to begin to look at each other in love and say, where are you reading in the scriptures? Oh, scriptures. No, I'm too overwhelmed. I'm not reading anywhere. I'm so discouraged. There's so much going on. I'm so stressed. I'm not. I don't know how to help you. Your doctor wouldn't give you a medicine. He wouldn't hand you a a five-hour energy drink or a monster drink. He would point you back to the diet you need to strengthen your physical life. God is pointing us and saying, right here, eat it for breakfast, lunch, dinner. And let me suggest this. Since he's talking about the Old Testament in verse 4 and then gives an example of using it four times in verses 9 to 12, let me encourage you. This ought to cause some of you to run to your Bible and maybe for the first time say, you know what, I'm going to read all of it. I'm going to find out what's back there. But let me encourage you. I admit it is harder 
I grew up in the church. Every time I started in Genesis 1-1, said, let's do this thing. This thing ended about mid-Leviticus. All right? So I'm just going to tell you one friend to another where a beggar found food. Even I don't do it that way. It never went well. Nine years ago, I got myself a John MacArthur through the Bible in a year. And it gives me a little bit of the old. Every day it tells you what to read. A little bit of the Old Testament. Because it's, it's strong. That's, that's your Brussels sprouts sometimes and some of that. Then it gives me a little bit of a psalm. Ooh, sweet, praising God. Then it gives me two verses of Proverbs, not a chapter of Proverbs. I can't process that. It's talking about my mouth, my pride, the adulterous woman, your money. Like, where do I begin? Two verses. So it's saying a man without self-control is like a city with its walls down. I can think about that today. Two verses and then a half a chapter of the New Testament. I can read it in like 25 minutes. A diet. It's so good. I'm on my ninth year reading God's word that we have copies of that in the book. Well, we did first service may have snatched them, but you can go online. We know how to do this, right? Get yourself one Amazon prime. You can thank me, Amazon, Amazon prime. will have it to you in two days. Consider reading through the Bible. All of it. Some of you, maybe for the very first time, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. I got an email from a woman in our church family who was thanking me for the way I encourage our church family so often to read through the Bible each year. And she gave, gives me an example of where she said, this was life-saving for me. As the year was beginning, she was facing terrifying, horrible situation with her teenage son. I don't need to give you the details. If you've had teenage sons, you can fill in the blank. But they will scare you to death, some of the things they're doing that you just think, do you realize the consequences of this? Oh, So she's facing this kind of deal and not knowing where this is headed and I can't stop him and I can't control him. And it's just like, and she says this, Pastor Brad, I just want to thank you for always encouraging us to read through the Bible for the year. I've now been doing that for several years and I feel like this is so true. I feel like I'm returning to a friend when I start over again. I'm now more acquainted with where things are in the Bible from rereading every year. The first time it took me two years and it might be that way again this year. Hey, no shame in that. My wife does the same through the, through the Bible in a year with MacArthur. Sometimes it takes her two or three. There's no judgment here. Like what, you're behind? You didn't read today's? Oh, God's not gonna bless that. No, just ignore the dates and put a sticker where, you, where you're land. It may take you two years to get through. It's not how fast you do it. It's that you do it. Eat God's word for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She says, a little over a week ago, I was settled into my seat on a plane for a flight. And because of the terrible things that were going on with my son and the horrible thoughts of where's this headed and we don't seem to be able to stop him, all I wanted to do was cry. I've been there. Some of you have too. Now listen to what she says next that I can't help you with. It's on you. She made a choice. All I wanted to do was cry, but I pulled out my Bible to do my daily Bible reading. Choice. Anyway, and I read Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Some of you don't even know what that is. Habakkuk, sounds like you just spit tobacco. Habakkuk 3, <laughs> 17 to 19 that says this, 
Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Does this sound good? Do you hear anything good? Anything hopeful in circumstances? Anything that your eyes are seeing that you say, that makes me happy. That gives me hope for tomorrow. No. Wonderful word comes next. Yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. She says, oh, I clung to those verses the entire vacation. I reread those verses over and over and over. Even though my son is not the son I'd hoped for, I will rejoice in the Lord. I was stuck in a mud pit just thinking about him and what to do now. And God said, just find joy in me. What a weight it removed. I laid aside my worries and I am now set to get this new year underway, rejoicing in the God of my salvation. If I had not been reading through the Bible, I would not have come across those verses just when I needed them. God wants to do that for you also. I've, I've had that happen time after time after time. You have to make time for this. Number two, notice what Paul does regarding where to find hope, how to keep it alive. Secondly, number two, he shows us that you've got to pray, asking God to do in you, do in you what only he can do with your fickle, fickle heart and your fearful emotions. Asking him to do in you. Because here, you say, where do you get that, Brad? I don't see the word prayer anywhere in there. I was listening when you read it. Here's where I get it. In verse 5 and verse 13, Paul stops talking to them and starts praying for them. That's what just happened in verse 5 and verse 13. He stops talking to them and starts praying for them. He models for them what you got to do. Listen to verse 5. He says, now may the God, now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, folks. Prayer is powerful, but we live in a nation that has tried to turn it into a vending machine where I push a button and get God to give me my next goodie and what I want. And it doesn't work well that way. One of the greatest things about prayer is not I ask God for stuff and I get more stuff. More stuff is not my greatest need. One of the greatest things in prayer is you cry out to God and he reorients you and realigns your perception and how you view life and how you're seeing. Most often we're not seeing big enough. Satan loves to shrink your world down to the size of your current trial and obsess over it. And you just feel shrink wrapped. Hope can't stay alive in that shrink wrapped when your world is no bigger than your latest trial. You pray that God would help you see what you're not seeing and see bigger and perceive differently and process your trials and suffering differently and in a sense, connect the dots differently. You cry out to God and pray, oh God, work this in me. Very often, I feel like for me, 
Prayer is, is, is God by his spirit reaching over to the spiritual windshield of Brad Bigney and wiping off the fog and the film so that I can see what I'm not seeing. Even, even in times when we're not winter, in winter weather, and, and it's not fog, sometimes I'll just think, what is this? And I reach out as I'm driving, I rub it with my face. I'm like, it's just filth. And, and I'm not into filth. It's just filth. It's just a film. That's what life does. It just builds up. That's happening to us and our perception constantly. We live in a world that just every moment of every day is creating a bit of a film on your spiritual windshield. I need God's word to give me something to stand on, to give me spiritual legs to stand up under, to put courage back in my heart. And then I need to cry out to him in prayer. And as I enter into his presence and pray, and he begins to help me to think like he thinks and see more, the Holy Spirit wipes the spiritual windshield of my life. And I see more, I see more clearly, I process differently, and I begin to have, say the word, what is it we need? Hope. You pray to the God of hope. Now, track with me. That's why I think it's noteworthy to pay attention to how Paul prays for Christians. One of the best things you could do if you choose to read through the Bible this year, and I hope you do, just jump in where we are. When you get to the New Testament letters of Paul, he often launches off on a prayer for himself or someone else. Make a note of what he prays for. And decide, I'm going to pray for that kind of stuff. Don't hear me saying you can't pray for a job, can't pray for a spouse, can't pray for children, can't pray to be healed of cancer. Please do. But don't let that be the only things you're praying for. Because here's what's interesting. Paul does not spend any time praying for the things that fill up most of our prayer time. Make a note of it. It's almost like he has insider knowledge and he's on an inside track knowing there's something that helps people more than that. There's something that really helps more than that. And that's the way he prays. That's what you see him doing right here. These are Christians that are suffering and he doesn't pray for Rome to stop beating up on them. Rome to do this and the rulers to do that. I see, I see three things that Paul prays for them. And we should make a note of this. Number one, he prays that they would be caught up in something bigger, bigger than their own little world and their own little agenda. Look at it in verse six. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why corporate worship is important. You come together with God's people and it helps you lay aside and realize corporately there's something bigger going on. There's something more going on. God's kingdom, your little world can just become your little world, my kingdom come, my agenda. He's praying for them to get caught up in something bigger than their own agenda. Secondly, I see him praying that they would actually choose to believe. Look at it in verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in believing. I I pray on a regular basis, Lord, just like the man who was concerned about his son that kept throwing himself in the fire, demon possessed, Mark 9. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I've got a mixture inside of Bradby. I need his help to help me believe. Paul's praying for them that in believing... It's your choice. And here's how I put it to you. Just standing on the sidelines with a handful of biblical promises and hearing testimonies of other people who have trusted God is not what produces hope in your life. You've got to believe yourself. You've got to take him at his word. It's when you lean into God's promises and it's when you step out on that he begins to produce hope. You know why? 
Stay with me. Because you start to have a record of God's faithfulness yourself. You're not riding on the stories you've heard from others. You start after a while, you're like, and you can be in a new scary moment, but like, I was terrified four years ago with X, Y, Z, and I trusted God and he took us through that in ways I never could have imagined. You start to have a record. If you just stand on the sidelines with a handful of promises and you never believe, lean into it. Not because you feel it. Some of you are waiting on a feeling. I don't feel trusting, nor do I on most days. On a regular basis, I have to say to my feelings, feelings, you can come or you can stay right there. But we're going here because this is what God's word says. I hope you'll join me. I'd love to feel it. But even before I do, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this. I'm gonna take God his word. I'm gonna take him at his word. I'm gonna take him at his word. I'm gonna stand on his word. I'm gonna act on it. I'm gonna step into it. He prays for them that in believing, in believing, hope would abound. Hope starts to abound as you take him at his word and believe it and live it and act on it, even if you don't feel it. Don't hear me saying it's easy. Do hear me saying it's so worth it. And you start to, you start to have some hope that other people don't have. And they think, why, why are you this way? Because I know I have no reason to be hopeful on a human level, but my God, there's a history. There's a history. I've been walking with him for a while now. There's a history. I've got my own. I've got my own answers to prayer in my prayer journal. I've got my own God moments. I've had a front row seat to some of my own God showed up moments. Number three, I see that he prays that more and more will have an awareness, an awareness of a power that's far greater than your own working in you. That's the Holy Spirit. Look at it at the end of verse 13. In believing that you may abound in hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the living Jesus lives in you. So track with me on this. God is a God of hope. It's stated clearly. May the God of hope. God has plenty of hope. He's a hopeful God. God is a God of hope. The Holy Spirit is God. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. So it's not like, There's hope outside of me. I got to get in me. He lives in you. So the more you begin to be filled with the spirit, empowered by the spirit, led by the spirit, listening to the spirit, you will be hopeful. He is the God of hope and he lives in you. So that's why Ephesians 5 says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. The more I allow the spirit to control me and fill me and lead me and I listen He's a hopeful God. I will have hope. Being filled with the spirit doesn't make you do bizarre, stupid things. That's not evidence of filled with the spirit. You'll begin to do courageous things. You'll begin to take risks that other people don't. You'll begin to trust God in ways that other people don't. That's what being filled with the spirit looks like. Because he's the God of hope. That's how I see Paul praying. And we should pray for ourselves that way. So you pray and you cry out. But there's a third thing that I see Paul doing here. How are you going to get hope? It's in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. That word admonish is the Greek word nutheteo, made up of two words, nous, mind, and tithemi, to place to place to mind, to bring back to mind. 
You need other believers at close range, not just like this saying, hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Lie, lie, lie. You need other believers at close range in a small group. That's what our small group ministry is about. Our small group ministry exists to flesh out, verse 14 of Romans 15. Admonish one another. I need someone else to remind me when I'm not remembering it. I've lost sight of it. That's what our biblical counseling ministry is all about. Sometimes you need someone to just sit down right across from you privately and to help you understand what have I forgotten? What don't I understand? What do I need to know about God's word and how to do it that I'm missing here? Help me. Verse 14, we try in our church to actually have places where you can do it beyond preaching and teaching, which is wonderful. But we need one another to admonish one another. Let me give you another example of what it looks like to go to the right places for hope. I received an email from a dear mother in our church family who faced the grief, if you can imagine, of burying, burying her precious almost two-year-old daughter the weekend of Mother's Day. How do you get through that? And then how do you live through every next Mother's Day year after year with that being your memory of that weekend. And so she wrote me confessing, it's a great temptation every year to just be overwhelmed with sorrow and self-pity and not want to even go to church or, or connect with anybody else. But listen to what she wrote me and how God is helping her. It's a choice she had to make. She said, I've recently been dealing with some self-pity as we get closer to the two-year mark of my precious daughter's death. I've been revisiting the last days with her and feeling sorry for myself that I no longer have her with me. I've been asking God, notice, she's crying out to God. I've been asking God to continue to hold me up and give me comfort as I've been overwhelmed with feelings of defeat and self-pity that make me feel like it's just too much. Choice. Just like the woman on the plane, she's about to do the same thing. But then I sat down with my Bible. She doesn't say, but then I took to the bed and curled up and turned the TV on for just endless hours of nonsense. Then I reached out to my doctor for a mind-numbing drug. No. Then I sat down with my Bible and I cried. And I continued on my journey through Zechariah. Again, some of you are like, What? It's in the Bible. And I was so blessed by the words of Zechariah 4, 6, and 7, where God promises that the mountain is not too big for him to conquer and that he does it by supplying his spirit, which we have access to ourselves. As I read those verses, I felt like he spoke directly to me like a child sitting in her father's lap. As I prayed and thanked him for such comfort, he revealed to me that I'm not two years further away from my daughter, but rather two years closer to heaven. I get to go to heaven. I get to have eternity and glory just like my daughter. This was, and here, this is interesting. This was not a new revelation, but it was a much needed reminder while I was at such a low point. You understand what she's saying, folks? We don't read the Bible to learn something new every day. Sometimes you do. I'll tell you what mainly we're doing. You read the Bible to remember something you've forgotten because your sorrow right now has pushed it out of you. And this brings it back. Remember, 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 remember. 
She says, it is God's word alone that has brought me such comfort because it is the truth. I love that I can be sad, but also so joyful and content at the same time. I will visit her grave and thank God for the time I had with her. I will sing praise and give glory to God, probably through some tears. But I have hope. Oh my goodness, she didn't get it from her best friend. She certainly didn't get it from a blog or talk radio. She got it from God's word and crying out to God and recognizing her spirit is, his spirit is in her at work. Quickly, let me close by saying, I want you to notice how this passage also has a theme of Jesus Christ running through it. Because God's given us more than just a grid of printed promises, special as that might be. Apart from the person of Jesus Christ, there'd be no hope or confidence in any of these promises. It's Jesus that confirms all the promises of God. He's running all through this passage. passage. Look at verse 5. According to Christ Jesus. Verse 7. Just as Christ also received us. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, Christ came to confirm the promises. That's why I love 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says, For all the promises of God in him, Jesus, are yes, and in him are amen. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a yes to any of these promises or an amen. But Jesus is the one that we know because of him, yes, yes. Look at all the promises in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled. Yes, in Jesus, and everything's yet to come is yes, it's going to happen. Yes. He gives us a person, not just printed promises. One of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption with Morgan Freeman, who's one of my favorite actors. But this is not a family-friendly movie, so don't run, grab it, and sit down with the whole family with popcorn tonight, because I mentioned it. It's set in a prison, and prison, prisons are not nice places, so it gets its R rating very honestly. But here's what I love about it. It captures and communicates so well what we're talking about, how important hope is. Because it's the story of two guys that are doing long, hard years in prison while they secretly dig a tunnel or a way out. And one gets out before the other. But he tells him, if you ever get out, go to this certain place under this certain tree and dig up this box. The second guy does get out. And this is my favorite scene. That second guy digs up the box, opens it up, and there's this note in the box from his friend that says this, never forget, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things and no good thing ever dies. And part of us is like, yeah, I think. And, and it's an example of where Hollywood, once again, gets it almost right, but not quite. Is hope a good thing? Yes. yes. Is it one of the best things in this world? But does it die in this world? Every day. Every day. Hope dies on the altar of a rebellious child who's breaking your heart. And yet there's no funeral. Hope dies every day on the altar of drug addiction and financial collapse and, and abuse and divorce. Hope dies every day around us in our world with real people. Because hope cannot stay alive it is a good thing. One of the best things, unless it's tethered to something outside this world. Yea, verily not something, someone. And his name is Jesus. 
That's why the apostle Peter, writing to Christians who were suffering intensely, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Apart from Jesus, you cannot keep hope alive. And Christian, you may say, oh, I've got Jesus. You're still going to struggle unless you feed, feed hope. That's how you feed hope, right here. Oh God, I pray that you would work your good work in us by your spirit. Thank you for giving us everything we need for life and godliness and hope. Giving us your word in our language. Giving us your spirit, the God of hope living in us. Giving us our savior and a record of his faithfulness and what is yet to come. Oh God, make us people that are feeding in the right places so that we are those people. Not perfect, but we have something to stand on when everything's crumbling. We have spiritual legs that don't buckle as quickly as others. And we have courage regularly being injected back into our heart so that we can persevere and be peculiar and praise you. And our culture say, what is this? It's not based on circumstances. It's not that you don't have cancer. It's not that your kids are all perfect. What is this? They'll ask you a reason for the hope that is in you and we can share the gospel. Point them to Jesus Oh God, work in us by your grace and for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.